the sixth chapter, and this will be a brief word this morning as I had really planned to show uh, Pastor Rhonda ministering at um, Becky's funeral, but since that DVD mysteriously got lost, misplaced, and trashed, or whatever happened to it, uh, we might save that for a little time later in the month. You just wonder if, uh, if Becky and Roy have actually connected and talked about harvest and some of the worship, some of the praise. We know that they are in a place with David where there's never, no more pain, no more tears. God wiped all the tears from their eyes. And you know what? The word says that we're surrounded with a great cloud of witnesses. And so they're not, they're not far, far away. Their presence from time to time, you will feel them. I'm sure Carmen can relate. My grandmother, when she went to be the Lord, I felt her presence several times in my life praying for me and uh, interceding for me. And I believe as a saint in heaven, I believe there's a door there. The Bible says there's a ladder. There's a stairway to heaven where, where angels descend and ascend. We know that after his death, Samuel came back to this earth. There are two or three stories in the Bible where we know that they're not pinned down in heaven, but they, they freely move from one dimension to another. And we have those saints praying for us and encouraging us. And I believe that, that Becky and David and, and Roy would say, don't give up. It's worth it. It's worth the race. It's worth the effort. It's worth the pain. It's worth the frustration. Don't give up. It is worth it. Through the word of God, we're shared, we, we have been told in Revelation 12 and 10 that there is power in our testimony, that something happens when we testify. It is not just what overcomes the enemy, but it's what gives others hope and encouragement. If you've never been to a teen challenge function, the majority of the, of the agenda there is to bring ex-drug addicts and come and share how long they've been clean, how they stay clean, how they, how they enjoy being clean. I'll be going to Minnesota in September 21st and be ministering to a teen challenge there. And my thought or theme will be get clean, stay clean, enjoy clean. It's quite, quite an honor for me to go. It's a great church that I've been a part of. Preached a revival there almost 32 years ago, still in relationship with the church. The church runs several hundred, probably about 1,800, and they've asked me to do all three services and preach on the Eagles. So that's, that's where I'm headed, and that's what, I will, that's what I will do. But there is a testimony I want to show you in Isaiah 6 and 1. I believe the guys are so kind to pull it up on the uh, overhead, hopefully in the King James translation. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw what? In, in the year, Pastor Ron, don't spoil it. In, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw what? Who said it? Say it a little louder. I saw also the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the post door of him that cried moved, and the house was filled with smoke. What a, what a, what a glimpse we have into heaven this morning. We know that Isaiah was a prophet. He is the only prophet that actually acknowledged that his prophetic gift came from God. Uh, he was faithful. Most of his prophecy had to do with the Messiah. He never saw his prophecies. He was the one that prophesied. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised 
for our iniquities. He's the one that prophesied, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray. He's the one that prophesied that a son shall be born, a child shall be born, a son shall be given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Isaiah never saw any of those prophecies come to pass. History says he was sawn in half as a martyr for his testimony because he refused to stop prophesying. But in the sixth chapter of, of Isaiah, we catch a glimpse of this prophet Isaiah and something that I want to bring attention early in this passage of Scripture, he makes a statement in the year that King Uzziah died. I'd like to ask, has anybody this season can relate to a tough year? Can anybody relate to, you know what, it just seems like this past 12 months has really been a tough, tough season. I have a spiritual daughter uh, ministering in another city and was going through quite a bit of stuff, and so I begin to encourage her, and I begin to do some homework, and if you'll look at the actual, when the door of the ark was shut, and the rain began to fall, and the ark actually subsided on a mountain that we call Mount Ararat, which the world right now is focused because of all the Christians that are being uh, chased by ISIS and all of that, but from the time of the door shutting to the door opening and them walking and planting a garden and worshiping God, it was a one-year window. I would like to tell you that all of your challenges and problems will probably be over within the year. Wouldn't that be great to be able to prophesy that? But Isaiah is having a tough year. And the reason he's having a tough year is because his uncle happened to be the king. He wasn't just any king. He was a king that reigned for 52 years. He was a king that had conquered all the known territory in that area and it was on his watch that the catapult was invented and was, was actually a working prototype of throwing a large rock over the wall of fortresses that they, would, that they would take on. And it brought a lot of destruction. He was a powerful, incredible uh, king, one of Israel's greatest kings. But in the challenge of doing all those accomplishments, one day he tried to do something that God said only the priest could do. He went beyond the veil in the Holy of Holies, and there he contracted leprosy, and within the year, he died. Isaiah had his eyes on Uzziah because Uzziah was his uncle that gave him carte blanche. His uncle, obviously being the king, I don't know uh, if you would, if, if Mr. Obama was your uncle, I don't know if you would milk that or you would try to use that to your benefit. I know that I certainly would. I would drop that, that relationship and I would try to get into concerts and into special me. Can anybody, any, are you there with me? If your uncle was the president of the United States, would you call and say, hey, uncle, I'd like to come by and see the White House or I like this special. Oh, nobody, but I'm the only one that would milk that. But his, but his, his uncle has died. And we see in this passage of scripture that in Isaiah's ministry, in, in Isaiah's life, he got his eyes off the Lord and got his eyes on his uncle. And, you know, getting ready to celebrate 60 years of life and getting ready to celebrate 34 years of full-time ministry, 30 years of a marriage being restored, 35 years of being drug clean. I can relate in my walk with God that there have been times when I've got my eyes off the Lord and usually on circumstances. Can anybody relate to circumstances. I've got my eyes sometimes off the Lord 
and looked at some of the challenges that I was encountering. Sometimes I got my eyes off the Lord and looked at some of the hobbies that I love to do. I got my eyes off the Lord and sometimes money was more important than worship. I believe every one of us in our life, there will be seasons or have been seasons when we have been distracted from the things of God and the presence of God and the promises of God. And we've got our eyes on our own circumstances. I remind you, it was right in the middle of an incredible miracle that Peter looked down. And he got his eyes off the Lord and he saw the, the, the ocean and he saw the waves and he saw the, the, the danger there. And he got distracted and he almost drowned. And this is what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah, a prophet, a man of God, got his eyes off the things of God and got his eyes on his uncle. His uncle dies. Isaiah goes through a season of repentance and preparation and he catches a vision of heaven. Now, God told Moses, said, you can't see me, only my backside, because you see me face to face, you will die. So I don't know if it was through a veil or through a mist or through, or through a cloud, but Isaiah catches a vision of the Lord, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, seating upon the throne, and his train filled the temple. Those of you that have been around us any length of time, you will know that we personally believe that our words of worship and our quotes of praise are words that clothe God in his glory. I believe if we could catch a vision of heaven and we could see that train, I think that train would be full of spoken words that have left this earth and have gone up to heaven to the presence of God. Because we know that it is praise and worship that knows no detour. When we praise God and worship God, our praise and worship goes directly to God and becomes a part of that corporate veil. And so we see this praise and worship filling the temple. Isaiah has got his eyes off the Lord. He gets his eyes back on the Lord and he sees this incredible sight where there are these seraphims that are around the throne of God. And three things I need to bring attention concerning the seraphims. The word says with two of their wings, they cover their face. And that tells us that we should never do anything to distract people from praising and worshiping God. There, should, there shouldn't be anything to our praise and worship that would distract or take away. And I know that none of you have ever been in a church where you saw somebody in the flesh and they were either dancing or rolling or jerking or shouting or they were doing something. But when it happened, something in your spirit cringed. Can anybody relate? There was a cringe factor and you realize, man, that, that's, that's really kind of taken away from what God is really doing here. Am I the only one? Is there, do, I have a, do I have a witness in this place? And so that's why the angels, although they were glorious, they were beautiful, they were awesome, they covered their face so their beauty would not take away from the glory of God. The second thing they covered was their feet. I remember we used to sing that song, be careful feet where you, be careful little feet where you go. There's a father up above looking down in tender love. And there I believe that God is telling us as worshipers, we need to guard and we need to guide and we need to order our steps. The Bible says our steps are ordered and ordained and orchestrated. That to music, God prepares a place for us, a place for us to walk. It's a straight, it's a narrow way, it's a, it's a way that leads to righteousness and holiness. But we should never let what we're doing distract us from pursuing and, and, and finding the purpose and the plan of God in our life. And then with the third set of wings, they flew. That's what they did. They hovered around the presence of God, singing, holy, 
holy, holy. Notice they didn't sing love, love, love. They didn't sing peace, peace, peace. They didn't sing worship, worship, worship. They sang holy, holy, holy. Because that's the whole purpose and plan of the angels that were created. They were created to praise and to worship God. And that's what they did. We know that as you study this in the Hebrew, they, they did it in such a way is that when you went before the throne of God, that's all that came from their mouth. No other word, no other proclamation, no other declaration. If you were to walk up to one of these angels while they are worshiping, and you were to ask them, hey, I just got here. Where's David that killed Goliath? Or where's Daniel that survived the, the uh, den of lions? They may look at you and attempt to answer you where those two Bible characters are. But when they open their mouth, the only word that would come forth from their mouth is holy. How incredible, how phenomenal is that? I remember several years ago when my cousin went to marry uh, his, his fiance the night before the wedding we took him out. We got something to eat. I want to believe that we were at a place called Bob's Big Boy. Now, if you've never been to California or to Chicago, you probably can't relate to Bob's Big Boy. Shoney's is kind of a, a pattern after Bob's Big Boy. But we were there in the restaurant, and we told our cousin, if you don't leave this restaurant in three verses of row, row, row your boat, we're going to take you. When out. I cannot tell you what we told him we were going to do to him the night before his wedding, but it involved super glue and some other things that we had been inspired to use. And so my cousin stood up, took a glass of water, took a spoon, clanked the water, and he said, you know, tomorrow's my wedding, and I thought I was surrounded by my friends, but my cousins have told me they're going to hurt me if I don't do this particular thing. And so my cousin, and if you've been around him, he's a type A personality, and he's, he, he certainly has the ability to do what he just did. But he led the entire restaurant in three verses of row, row, row your boat. He would start this section off singing row, row, row your boat. And then he would start this section, row, row, row your boat. And this section went gently down the stream. And this section was doing row, row, row your boat. And he had the entire restaurant participating. So we did not do anything mean to him because he, he honored our challenge. And that's the way in the Hebrew, this passage of scripture is that as one, as one angel says holy, before that word holy is out of his mouth, the next angel says holy. Before that word is out of his mouth, the next angel says holy. So 24-7, eight days a week, in the presence of God, there are angels declaring holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And as they are declaring these words holy, 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 two things happen. Number one, the Bible says the smoke filled the room. And number two, it says the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. We are a worshiping church, and we know all about praise and worship. So I, want to, I just want to lay some basics out here that, that we're already familiar with and comfortable with. It just felt like something last night. I felt like this is how I was supposed to prepare you. Remember, it's easy in life to get your eyes off the Lord. Sometimes we can get so busy, so overwhelmed, or so much under attack that thinking about the things of God and pursuing the things of God and looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. I remember a chorus that we used to sing in the Church of God years and years and years ago. It says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. 
But knowing all of that, knowing that when we cast our eyes on Jesus and we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, the presence it brings and the, and the authority it brings, the glory it brings, sometimes it's easy to forget all the things it does and to get our eyes on our problems. I think there was a, there was a famous quote several years ago that said, instead of telling God about your problems, tell your problem about God. And I love that because when you begin to confront See, you can't change anything you tolerate. You can't change anything you won't confront. So many people are content with where they're at, even though it's not where God wants them to be. There are those living in the area of poverty. There are those living in the area of rebellion. Those are living in the area of sin and not realizing that if they would confront their sin, confront their rebellion and confront their poverty, that God has a way of turning everything around and working everything for his good for the kingdom of God. Do I have a friend in the place? When I see this, when I see this house filled with smoke, I know that we are spirit, soul and body. Man is simply a spirit that possesses a soul and, can, and, and occupies a body. That that spirit man has a hunger. That spirit man has a thirst for the things of God, for the righteousness of God, for the glory of God. And the Bible says that corporately, when people begin to gather to praise and to worship, it creates a presence. It creates what many call the Shekinah glory of God. When the priest would go beyond the veil, and we'll talk about that in a minute. When the priest would go beyond the veil, there was an expectation because the tabernacle was made of three parts. The first part that had the altar and the lover, that part had no ceiling, and there the priest depended upon sunshine to guide his steps. When the priest stepped into the inner chamber, there was the menorah, the seven candlesticks that brought attention to the table of showbread and, and, the, and the menorah. But when you stepped in the Holy of Holies, it was enclosed. There was absolutely no light. There were no candles. There was no sunlight. That's where the priest depended upon the Shekinah glory of God to light up the Holy of Holies, to light up the, the Ark of the Covenant so the priest would know where to apply the blood. How cool is that? So you know what? There are things that we can do in the natural to pursue God. There are things that we can do in the educated to pursue God. But the word says the way to God's heart is to worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What do you mean in spirit and in truth? You've got to tap into that third person that you're contained. You can't focus on the soul. How many of the soul sometimes does not feel like worshiping or praising God? Several, several, several years ago, there was a little country town somewhere in the Providence of Kentucky and this little, little, little town in Kentucky had this church, this Pentecostal church that was on the other side of the tracks. Now, most of you cannot relate to the other side of the tracks because we really don't have a railroad. But the other side of the tracks were the ones that weren't all that fortunate and weren't all that wealthy and weren't all that blessed. And on the other side of the tracks, this church had built right on the river. And this was a church that loved to praise. They loved to worship. They had a choir. They were not afraid to celebrate. And what happened in this little, this little particular church, this church was full of women that were not afraid to let their hair down. Now, again, if you've never been around the bun, the Church of God bun, you cannot relate to what that means. But they weren't afraid to let the bobby pins fly when they were praising and worshiping God. And there was a young lady that was attending this church and she was a part of the church and she loved the church and she was dating the banker's son. The banker's son, his name was Lorenzo. Lorenzo, the banker's son and this young lady were getting pretty serious 
and she kind of felt in her heart that Lorenzo was going to ask her to marry him because if he didn't, she was going to ask him to marry her. So one particular Wednesday afternoon, Lorenzo and this young lady were together after school, and Lorenzo said, you know, if we're going to get married, we're going to have to decide what church that we're going to go to. Now, you've been to my church for an Easter cantata, for a Christmas story, but I've never been to your church. Well, Lorenzo, the banker's son, was Methodist, and she had been to his Methodist church. And Methodists have a method to their worship. And it's kind of sometimes formal, sometimes liturgic, sometimes a little boring, very calm, very quiet. But he had never been to her church, which her church with people shouted, praise, worship God, love the Lord. The church had, got, had grown to such a degree that they had to expand the building. And because they had no room to the left or the right, they actually went in the river, put up pilings and built a section of a sanctuary right over the river. Well, trying to get it done by Sunday, they really didn't build it quite as solid as it should be. That song, Shall We Gather at the River, they never sang that song because they felt that was a negative confession because they never really knew when the last half of the church was going to float off down the river. But it worked for them. So this young lady went home and she said, Mama, i got to have a talk. Mama, Lorenzo, the banker's son, has asked me to marry him and he wants to come to our church tonight. And Mama... You know how you get when you go to church. Well, Mama was five foot two, weighed about 280 pounds. And when Mama loved God, all of Mama loved God. Mama would throw up those arms. She would let out a shriek. And then she'd start running around the church towards the back. And Mama looked at her and said, well, honey, I'll try to tone it down. But you better, you better call your Aunt Dorothy. Mama and Dorothy were twins. And not only was Dorothy five foot two and weighed 280 pounds, but all of Dorothy loved God. And when she loved God, she would let us shriek. She'd head towards that aisle. Mom would head towards this aisle. And listen, when those 600 pounds of Holy Ghost filled women got to the back of a sanctuary that wasn't very well supported, everybody began to intercede in prayer. They were kind of like the thermostats of the church when they shouted, everybody got involved. Because if you didn't get involved, you could actually get hurt. So mama, they got, the, they got the thing going. Mama got a hold of, of Aunt Dorothy, and Dorothy got a hold of the choir director. The choir director got a hold of the pastor, and they were all impressed because a banker's son had never attended their church. And they were wanting to borrow some money to build onto the church, and they want favor with the banker's son. So somehow the choir director heard about it, and he's saying three of the most boring just just slow beat, just boring song. And the choir was right there with him, just boring, no move of God, nothing happening. The preacher, knowing the banker's son was there, he got, it, he got him three points in a poem, and he wanted, to pray, he wanted to preach just the right sermon to impress the banker's son. All went well. Nobody got excited. Nobody shouted. Nobody went running the aisles. At the conclusion of the service, the pastor asked Sister Sally to stand and close in prayer. Now listen, Sister Sally lived so far out in the country that she had to go towards town to hunt. That's how far she was in the country. And she didn't get the message that Lorenzo, the banker's son, was coming. She didn't get any message at all. And instead of standing and praying where she was seated, she got up, walked up on the platform, grabbed a hold of the podium, looked at the pastor, then looked up and said, Father, and in case he didn't hear, she said it again. She said, Father, 
Now, Father, I don't know what's wrong with this bunch of people tonight. Father, this service is deader than 4 o'clock in the morning, and I don't know what's going on. But, Father, I am 92 years of age, and I weigh 87 pounds. And, Father, I might not be here tomorrow. So, Father, before I leave here, I am going to praise you and worship you. I don't know what they intend to do, but I'm going to praise you and worship you. That little 5 foot, 4 foot, 9 87-pound little lady began to lift those hands and begin to praise and begin to twirl and begin to spin. She got down in the aisle, and there was Mama sitting on the front row. The power of God's coming all over, and that little little salad just happened to touch her on the shoulder. Baby, that was all she wrote. Katie, bar the door. Mama was headed down that aisle. Was Auntie is not going to be outdone. So Auntie, the power of God comes upon her. She runs down that aisle. Both of them meet in the lobby. The building begins to shake. The choir director starts doing chicken pecks all over. The organist starts slinging bomby pins through the air. God came down. The presence filled the place. And for the next hour, they worship. At the conclusion of the service, in the horse and buggy, Lorenzo, driving his bride-to-be home, looked at his fiance and he said, You know, tonight, at first I was a little disappointed in your church. And she goes, Whoa, 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 don't you be talking about my church. She said, No, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything bad. But your church has a reputation of it's a place where God is welcome and miracles take place and people get blessed. He said, but you know what? He said, your church was just like my church. Your choir sang just like my choir. Matter of fact, some of the same song. Your pastor preached just like my pastor preached. And there wasn't any difference at all. He said, when that, when that little lady began to praise, I felt something I've never felt before in my entire life. He said, matter of fact, he said, I want to get filled with the Holy Ghost. She said, right now we're on a date. He said, yeah, right now. About that time, coming down the road in a custom-made buggy was Mama and Auntie. And Mama pulls up and says, honey, what's going on? She said, Mama, Ma, Lorenzo wants to get filled with the Holy Ghost. And Mama said, right now? She said, right now. So Mama got on one side of that carriage. They couldn't get in it. Auntie got on the next side of that carriage. And they laid hands on Lorenzo. And right there in the back hills of Kentucky, Lorenzo, the banker's son, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Fire baptized, began to shout, began to praise, began to speak in tongues. And there was a season when he pastored one of the largest assembly of gods in America. Why? Because one little old lady said, I came on business for the king. He taught me how to shout. He taught me how to sing. I didn't come here to do my own thing. I came on business for the king. Your worship cannot just change the ambiance that you're a part of, but it certainly affects the glory and the presence of God, that God would allow that glory cloud to come down, that we can feel His presence, His glory, enjoy it, experience it, and share it with others. And then it talks about the post of the door moving at the voice of Him that cried. Notice this isn't just the door coming down, but it's the actual framing that that entitles the door to hang on those hinges Praise will open every door that's been closed to you. Praise will open every door that God is knocking on, try to convince you to open it. Praise has the ability to take you from where you're at to where God wants you to be and then bless you what he has for you because you are doing and becoming what God has called you to do. Is there anybody excited about that, that praise can turn things around? And we are a praising church. We believe in praise. We believe in worship. We know what those two will do. But what is so exciting about this story, as as Isaiah began to go through a tough time, 
and got his eyes off the Lord, he would do three things. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write these things down. The first thing that Isaiah does in the middle of his calamity, right there in the middle of his challenge, in the middle of his doubt, discouragement, and frustration, Isaiah looks up. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up. I think there comes a place in every one of our lives that we need to forget who we are or who we think we are or how important we think we are or how much money, how much wisdom, how much education that we have. And we need to go to an altar and we need to turn our eyes on Jesus. Turn our eyes on Jesus. And when you begin to flow in that mode, you will learn. And again, we've said it a hundred times in, in 24 years. You're probably tired of hearing it. But this podium was, was built just for me. It's, it's my height. It was, my, my waist was measured before it was built to make sure that my belly wouldn't bump into it. But this, this, this podium was made to hold my Bible and my notes and my glasses and all kinds of cool stuff underneath. This microphone was, was invented to project my voice from where I'm at to that receiver, from the receiver to the speakers. There's a reason why it was invented. Just as a hammer was made for a reason, these reading glasses were made for a reason, you and I were made for a reason, and that is from the abundance of our heart that we are to praise and worship God. Before you're a Republican, before you're an American, before you're a male, before you're a dad, before you're a mom, before you're a contractor, before you're a sales clerk, you are a worshiper. You were created to be a worshiper. And something happens when God's people begin to take time to praise Him and take time to worship Him. There was a evangelist missionary years and years ago that this particular ministry had touched the world. He was a powerful speaker. He gave altar calls. Hundreds, thousands got saved. Every couple years, he would take a sabbatical and he would come to America and he would pastor a church and there he would raise money to go back to the mission field. This pastor missionary was an incredible speaker. He was a great man of God. Unfortunately, has some challenges with his body, and his, and his body would not line up with his eating habits, and this minister was obese. He was not obese because he ate incorrectly. He was obese because there was something wrong with his body that caused him to be obese. And this pastor accepted a pastorate in Detroit, Michigan. He was pastoring Assembly of God there, and there was a particular family in the church the pastor really liked. He liked them. They, they connected. They talked. They visited. He talked to them before church, after church. From time to time, he would go to their house and he would take something, maybe, a, maybe something for them to help him with. And as he would step on the narthex, if you've never been in the, in the cold weather, most houses in Michigan have like an enclosed porch where you go and all the water and the snow and the ice falls off of you and you kick off your shoes and then you step into the house. And he would go to the narthex and he would knock on the door and they would open the door and he would hand them whatever he had wanted them to do for him. And without exception, every single time, Jennifer, they would invite him in to sit down, visit, drink a cup of coffee and just fellowship. And every time he said no. But as he was saying no, he was looking over their shoulder to see if they had made any kind of preparation for his visit. 
because he was obese, he made up his mind he was never going to sit on a couch or a chair again that was hard to get up. He had been embarrassed time and time again. And so he just wouldn't sit in any normal sofa, in any normal chair. It had to be a special kind of chair. It had to be specially built. And he would look over the shoulder and say, say to himself, don't they realize I just can't sit anywhere? Don't they realize there has to be a special seat for me to sit in? I believe that today on Eastern Standard Time that God has visited hundreds of thousands of churches with his name on, on their door. I believe they've got things dedicated to him. I've got, I believe they got his name and the title of their church. But as God passes by those churches, he says to himself, don't they realize I dwell in the praises of my people? Don't they realize they've got a build, a place for me to sit? And every word of worship that comes out of our mouth is a part of a framing tool that frames a place, a seat for God to sit down, for God to dwell, for God to take up residence. He just doesn't want to visit on Sunday morning. He wants to make a home in your heart. But your heart has got to be ready. Your heart has got to be strong. Your heart has actually got to build a place that God is more important than anything else in your life. I'm preaching good now. Don't make me shout at my own preaching. And that's what worship does. The, the word worship in the Hebrew means weighty, weighty. The things of God are weighty. The things of God are precious. God does not just idly just grant somebody a wish or just idly make a decision. But God weighs everything out. And when we create a place for him to occupy to take up residence, he doesn't just visit, he hangs out for a while. If you've been with me very long, you've heard me say this over and over again. The scripture says in him, we live and move and have our being, and we do, but also realize that in us, he lives, he moves, he has his being. The word said that Jesus was cut off from, from the land of the living. He never married. He never had children. He never had grandchildren. He never got to jet ski. He never got to snow ski. He never went four-wheeling. He, he never did any of those things in his lifetime. So now he does those things through us. You think God enjoys laughter? Absolutely. You think God likes to ride a jet ski 87 miles an hour? Maybe not 87. He probably gets off around 70. But yes, I believe in, in us. He moves. He lives. He has his being. You've got to have something to love to be the God of love. And there's an interaction there where you make him a very vital, important part of your life. And you actually do stuff together. I think it was Benny Hinn that wrote the book, Good Morning, Holy Spirit. But for years, we have been taught to say, when we wake up in the morning, Good Morning, Holy Spirit, what do you want to get into today? What do you want to do today? What do you want to be involved in today? And I believe that as we plan our morning, I believe that God directs our steps and we do things with God that's where the joy, that's where the peace, that's where the hope, that's where all that comes from, a personal relation with God, knowing that he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joys that we share as we tarry there, none other can ever know. Can anybody relate to garden experience? Can you relate to, to a place there in the garden? So he, look, he looks up in worship, and then as he looks up in worship, notice if you will, if you're still there at Isaiah 6, Notice, if you will, verse 5. The seraphims were saying, holy, holy, holy. The pokes, the door moved at the voice of him that cried. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
after Isaiah looks up. Then he looks in. And he realizes, my mouth is out of order. The people I'm hanging with, their mouth is out of order. Listen, it's tough to be an eagle when you hang out with buzzards, even worse, turkeys. It's tough to be what God wants you to be if you're around people that all they are is negative, critical, rebellious, anti-God, anti-church. It's tough to grow if you don't surround yourself with healthy people. I remember years and years and years ago, my generation, talk, 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 talk about, about, about my generation, my generation, we were the ones that put the T-shirt in the washer and put the bleach with the T-shirt and the color with the, with the bleach. And we're the ones that created the tie-dye. Right. Hello. I see kids wearing tie-dye shirts, and I said, what are you wearing that shirt for? That wasn't your generation. And they look at me so funny, like, like they want to fight me or something. I don't know what that's all about. But there's something about getting around people like-minded, like faith, like talented, like gifted, like priority. There's something about it. If, if, how can two walk together except they walk in agreement and a threefold cord is not easily broken? That's why the word says, if two or three will gather together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So Isaiah makes, it, makes a proclamation. He does an inventory on himself and realizes, I'm not where I need to be. I'm not doing what I need to be doing. I'm asking God for things and I'm not really qualified to ask God for things. There's some things that need to happen. The very next verse. The angel goes to the altar of apothecary. If you're with us about 10 years ago, I, I spoke over 12 times on the power of the altar. And we know that the inner courtyard where you offered the sacrifice and there you washed your hands. When you went into the next altar area, there was a table of showbread. There was the menorah. And then the third room, there was a, there was a curtain a curtain that the Bible says a team of horses could not pull in two. It was, it, was, it was sewn from the top to the bottom. And that curtain separated God from man. And one day a year called Yom Kippur, of 360 days in the Jewish calendar, only one day did one man go beyond the veil, step in the Holy of Holies, and the minute he, he went beyond the veil, there was the altar of apothecary. And this altar of apothecary... It had five ingredients mixed with oil. It was a special, it was a special apothecary. It was a special fragrance that God said, don't use this fragrance for any other reason than to come into my presence. And what would happen when the priest went beyond the veil, the blood had been shed, the lava, the, the, the menorah had been lit, the table of showbread was there. The priest would step beyond the veil, and before anything, he would let that fragrance saturate his robe and let that fragrance saturate his hair, and let that fragrance saturate his clothing, and that fragrance that came from the altar, that priest would have that fragrance, and then he would go to the Ark of the Covenant, and he prepared to put blood upon the mercy seat. Sometimes I believe we come to God with stinking thinking. I really believe that sometimes we come to God with like 10 things we want God to do for us or 15 things that we need to happen or three or four people we want God to strike down and kill. Can anybody relate to what I'm saying? And I think a lot of time without preparation, without preparing ourselves to go 
into the altar presence of God. And that's why we have worship for 30 to 45 minutes. There is no telling what you encountered last night before you went to bed. There's no telling what happened this morning. We got the kids up to try to get them ready. There is no there's no telling what kind of anarchy. Hello. Chaos and confusion. There's no telling what you were listening to on the way to church. There's no telling what radio station that you had playing. There's no telling what kind of battle the kids were having in the backseat. I can remember time and time again on road trips, my mom would whine to my dad that my brother and I crossed the line. How many knows what that means? In the backseat of our car, there would be an imaginary line. And if you stepped over that line, you were in trouble. Being the oldest, my little brother, I was always pinching him. I was always pulling his hair. He'd fall asleep, and I'd jab him with my elbow. And then he'd, he'd, he'd rat on me. He'd say, Mom, Hank's on my, he's on my side. He took my, he took my snack. He messed up my hair. So, so Mom would feed Dad. And it was dangerous because my dad, my mom never drove. So my dad was going to go from L.A. to Albuquerque in one, in one setting. That was his, and he did it year after year after year. We didn't stop. We didn't see Jack Rabbit run. We didn't see all the baby rattlers. We, we didn't see the, the Pecos Bill trading post. We'd see the sign, Pecos Bill, 237 miles away. And we start, oh, there's 180 miles. And we would beg our dad to stop and see the baby rattles. They weren't rattlesnakes. They were just little baby rattles. That's the way they got you to pull over. Indian-made, handmade moccasins. Well, moccasins had to be handmade. There was no other way to make them. But anyway, dad would never stop. And if we asked dad, dad, let's stop and get something to eat, we'd be driving down the road, and there'd be a Sonic. Dad, there's a Sonic right there. And, and Dad would look and say, where well, I don't see anything. And so we learned, and I preached a sermon one time, you, you learn to look where your father's looking. And where your father's looking, that's what you start asking for. Hello, do I have a friend in, in the house? But I can remember time and time and again, Dad holding on the steering wheel and then just, just taking random shots, just, just cheap shots. I mean, he'd knock my brother upside the dead. It's because our mom couldn't hurt us. She'd slap us and we'd laugh. We wouldn't laugh when he was there, but when, she, when he wasn't there, we, we would laugh. And then mom would say, okay, when your dad gets home, you're, you're going to get it, young man. Dad would come in. Mom would update dad what I did wrong that day. And dad would have that look in his eye and had that belt. And, and I, I'd say, dad, can we pray about this? And mom starts humming, too late to pray, too late to pray. And there was, he, his, his belt met my butt, and there you have it. But do I have a friend in the house? Can anybody... Can anybody relate to what Pastor is saying here? There's something about this fragrance that we prepare before we come in the presence of God. It doesn't matter if the lights are right. It doesn't matter if the music's right. It doesn't matter if the drummer or the guitarist are together. None of that matters. What matters is that our heart has prepared the right fragrance to step into God's presence. Several, several years ago, probably Mish would be the only, Debbie would be the only one that could relate, but I preached a sermon one time on the fragrance of God, and I had several, and you know, in my, life, in my lifespan, I have, I have enjoyed several different kinds of colognes. I, Paul Sebastian, if I'm going to meet any Church of God officials, I wear polo if I'm going to hang with the youth. I wear romance if I'm going to hang out with Pastor Rhonda. And so many different fragrances. And one Sunday, I ran around the building spraying the fragrance. And, and so you could, here's, here's eternity. Here's polo. 
here's romance, here's all. And what happened was we had two or three that were horrifically allergic to cologne, and they went out in the lobby, and I thought that I'd offended them and hurt their feelings, but actually they started breaking out into hives and stuff like that. But I was trying to make a point. I was trying to make a point that, that there's a certain fragrance that you admit when you go in the presence of God. And I didn't really have time to work this this morning, but I, when I thought about those five ingredients mixed with oil, which represents the anointing, I thought, I thought about the ingredients of thanksgiving. I thought about the, the, the ingredients of worship. I thought about the ingredient of prayer. I thought about the ingredient of praise. And then maybe not most important, but I, th I thought about the ingredient of hope. When you put those five things together and you come to the house of God expecting to receive something, you're probably going to receive. The Bible says you'll come in one way and you'll leave another. The Bible says you will be changed by the presence and by the power of God. And that's what, that's what Isaiah realized. He realized I am out of order. I need to do some things in my life to dis disciple myself, become obedient to the things of God. So the angel takes this apothecary, does not touch his brain, does not touch his ear, does touch his nose, but touches his mouth. And the angel says, you have been sanctified. Let's read it together. Chapter, chapter 6, verse 7. Verse 6. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Watch this. Praise and worship will take away your iniquity and purge your lips. It's hard to run somebody down when you're singing blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. It's hard to sin when you're singing at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. Do you see it? When you are in that gear of praise and worship, your sins have been forgiven and your lips have been purged. So what comes from your mouth is received by God and it's blessed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm preaching better than you're clapping, but that's okay. Three things that happened to Isaiah. He looked up and realized he was an instrument of worship, number one priority. He looked in and realized that he had to grow and build himself up in discipleship. And look at the last place he looked. Verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. I want to address every single born-again believer in this house today. Your priorities are three. Worship. Discipleship evangelism. How dare us keep this glory in the four walls of this church? How dare us not tell the message of a heaven to gain and a hell to shun? How dare us? When he told the disciples, going away, I'm going to send you a comforter. He said, I want you to go into all the world for witness unto all nations. That was the, that was the call. That was the and the song says, we will abandon it all for the sake of a call. And right now there are 40,000 Christians that are starving to death because the Muslim faith will not allow them to serve and worship God. And, and we so much take for granted and so much do not really appreciate some of the opportunities that have been provided. I'm not, I'm not fussing at you. I guess I'm talking in general that many people 
fail to realize that num your number one goal in life is to be a worshiper. Your number two goal in life is to learn all about the Lord that you can. What's that song says? I want to know more about my Jesus. I want to know more about my Lord. That was in the red hymn. I forgot what page it was. But those songs encourage us to grow in the Lord, to pray, to read the Bible, to love one another, to, to do mission work, to do alms, to be, to be focused a part of the body. And then, and then the, the, the last thing that Isaiah is called to, a door is open for someone to go to talk about the goodness of God. And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. I will go in your name. And what is so crazy, you don't have to get on a plane and fly to Burma or you have to get a plane and fly, fly to Istanbul. Uh, I forgot where D Dubai. Where's Dubai? India. India. I've been invited to go to Dubai. I may go. I'm kind of waiting just to pray about it. See, that's what I need to do. But you don't have to fly on a plane and go to Dubai to be a light and dark place. You can go to the parking lot of Walmart. You can go into the store of Walgreens. You can go walk the Greenway everywhere you go. Yesterday, I had the most exciting conversation going on with two men that were older than me. I was washing Pastor Ron's car, and these two guys, I mean, it was, just a, it was just a God thing. I got to tell them about being divorced, being on drugs, all that God did. And both the guys I was talking to, ironically, had been divorced, had, didn't really seem to have a whole lot of hope. They were driving very nice vehicles. But although they had all the toys, they didn't seem to be happy. Who would have thought? Right. And you know what? I could have stayed on the, in, in the air-conditioned part of that building waiting for my car to be ready. But I said, I'm just going to go out here and see what I can stir up. And I'm telling you, sometimes when you tell the Lord, Lord, what can I stir up? Where can I go? Where can, where can I go? Is it a donut shop? Is it Denny's? Is it touch, is it touch a, a, a waitress at Mount Fuji? Where, where do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? And you'll be amazed at the places that God will send you to be a light in a dark place because we've been called by his name out of darkness into his light to be praisers and worshipers. His name is written down. His name is written down on our palm, our forehead. Our name is written upon his hand. Does that excite anybody in the house? Let me conclude, if I, if I may, with a passage of Scripture. If you'll give me five minutes, I can. Can I have five minutes? I can do this in five minutes. John 14, verse 12. John 14, verse 12. Words are in red, so we know they're the words of Christ. Anytime, if you've heard me say this once, you've heard me say it a hundred times. Anytime you find the word behold, it's God tapping into a secret that he has kept just for you. The word says he doesn't share his stuff with everybody, but the believers, the secret things will be made known to them. How many knows that? How many of there are things hidden in words, God's word, not from you, but for you? God hides them there, and then all of a sudden they'll, they'll leap out on the page. Behold, the works I do shall you do also. And Chris, what a statement. My Lord, what a statement. When you think about some of the things that he did, he walked on water. He fed the multitude. He raised the dead. Open blind eyes, dealt with leprosy, dealt with pain, dealt with suffering. Every, everything, when you think of all the things that, that Jesus did, the Bible says in that three and a half year window, if 
every single person he healed or every single person he ministered to was recorded, the books of the world could not contain all the miracles he did. And I got to thinking about that. I've got over 2,000 books in my library. I think Pastor Ronald probably has about 800. So we've got 2,800 books. But the word says that my library, if it just listed every miracle that Jesus did in three and a half years, my, my library could not contain all those deeds. And what a, what a testimony for the disciples to see miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Behold, the works that I do shall ye do also, and greater works than these shall ye do. Why? Because I go to my Father. Okay, so Chris, I thought about that. Not only can I do his works, and I have seen the dead raised twice. I've seen people with, with cancer completely healed. I've seen people get up, walk out of wheelchairs. I've been around people that were born blind for years and years and years. I've watched their eyes open. I've seen some incredible, phenomenal miracles. I've watched God completely restore a womb, a womb that had no ability to have children, none. The ovaries stuff was removed. I've met that woman a year after I prophesied over her with a three-month baby boy. And I don't know why they didn't name the baby after me. But anyway, I've seen so, so, many, so many miracles. And I got to thinking, the works that I do shall you do also. And greater works than these shall you do because I go to my Father. So when I think about the word greater, what could be greater? And this week, I asked the Lord, sitting in that, that, that sanctuary there at the funeral home, I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, would you like me to raise him from the dead? Now, I know he's been embalmed, and I know he's been dead about, about five days. It looked, took a little longer, his body ready. But if the Lord would have said yes, I would have, I would have, hello, I don't know how I would have done it, but somehow I believe that maybe there's a conclusion. I walked, put my hand upon him. That's the kind of faith God expects us to operate in. When I get a report that someone's dying of cancer, I get a report that someone's got this or someone's got that. The word of God says I'm supposed to pray for them and expect God to heal them. The Bible says I'm supposed to raise the dead, that I'm supposed to speak, but do all kinds of things that I'm, I'm supposed to do. So when I think about the works that Jesus did, what could have been greater that day for me to say, Roy, come back to life. And right there with his daughters and family, what, what could be greater than raising the dead? What could be more exciting than walking on water? What, what could be more energetic than feeding a multitude with a basket of bread? I mean, you think about the works that he did. What could possibly be greater than what he did? Raising from the dead. At the right, I mean, what could possibly be greater than that? There was a preacher several, several, several years ago that brought this to my attention. And if you'll notice the word works the second time there in John 14 and 12, do you see it? In the King James, it's in italics. Dylan, that simply means that when it was originally translated, that word was not there, but it was added for clarity. There are several times you'll find words in italics, uh, hundreds of times you'll find words in italics that the translators, trying to make it more easy to read or understand, would add or take away words. And so that word works the second time wasn't in the original. So here's what Jesus said. Behold, the works that I do 
shall you do also, and greater than these shall you do, because I go to my Father. Okay, then you get to thinking about what is greater than raising the dead. What is greater than healing the sick? What is greater than, than feeding the multitude? What, what, is, what is greater than, than all, all those things the Bible says that we can do? What is greater? When Jesus went to the Father, something happened. These works that I do shall you do also, and greater than these shall you do, because I go to the Father. Does anybody remember what happened at Calvary? When he said it's finished. 4,000 years. Beginning with Aaron, the brother of Moses. Ending with Caiaphas, the high priest, when Jesus died. That 4,000 year window. Only 47 men. Period. In 4,000 years. Only 47 men ever went beyond the veil stepped in the presence of God, heard his voice, saw his glory, felt his power. Everyone else stood on the outside of the veil wondering, what's it like to be in God's presence? What's it like to hear his voice? What's it like to see his glory? But when Jesus said, it is finished, God rent the veil from the top to the bottom do you know what I can do any time of the day, any day of the week, any week of the year? I can go beyond the veil. I can step in God's presence. I can hear His voice. I can feel His glory. I can know His power. Why? Greater than these. What's greater than works? Worship. What's greater than miracles? Praise. What's greater than feeding the multitude? Having a personal relationship with God that there is no certain hour, night or day. I can call him when I want to. I can tell him what I need. He's never deaf to my cry. He's never short-handed to, reach, to extend to me when I'm where I'm supposed to be. As a worshiper, as a disciple, and as an evangelist. Those are three things that God has left us with. And I will 